Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, the thesaurus, that has become like a Bible. It's creative visualization that really set me free. I love actioning, very specific action verb. This is season three. Season three of The Actor's Mind, a podcast. You got it, you got it. <laughs> By Kateri McCrae and Anne Penna. <laughs> I would like to start this episode by expressing my profound sadness and disbelief in learning of Kristen's recent death, her influence on those of us who were fortunate to learn directly from her, as well as on her students' students, is immense and boundless, and to her we owe limitless gratitude. Thank you, Kristen. I am so excited to have this opportunity to talk with you, Kristen. So first, a bio. Kristen Linklater is one of the most recognized names in the field of voice production for actors. She trained as an actor at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, where the legendary Iris Warren was her voice teacher. Kristen began her teacher training with Warren when she was 21 and subsequently taught at Lambda for six years. In 1963, she moved to the United States opening her private studio in New York City. She was master teacher of voice in the New York University Graduate Theater Program, now the Tisch School of the Arts. She also worked as vocal coach at the Shakespeare Festival in Stratford, Ontario, the Tyrone Guthrie Theater, the Lincoln Center Repertory Company, the Open Theater, the Negro Ensemble Company, the Manhattan Project, and on Broadway. In 1978, she and Tina Packer co-founded Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts. Kristen left New York with her then two-year-old son, Hamish, for the Berkshires, where she lived for the next 12 years, teaching and acting with Shakespeare and Company. In 1990, she moved to Boston to teach at Emerson College. While based in Boston, she created and co-directed with Carol Gilligan, the Company of Women, an all-female Shakespeare Company, which ran workshops for women and girls and created all women productions of Henry V and King Lear. And incidentally, I got to see you play King Lear with the company of women when I was a college student. And I loved you and I loved the fool who was a child. In the fall of 1997, she moved back to New York City as professor of theater arts at Columbia University. She has written two books, Freeing the Natural Voice, first published in 1976, and then revised, expanded, and republished in 2006, as Freeing the Natural Voice, Imagery and Art in the Practice of Voice and Language. With Freeing Shakespeare's Voice, her other book, her books have sold over 200,000 copies. They are leading textbooks in the field and have been translated into many, many languages. Since 1965, Kristen has trained over 200 teachers in her methods. They teach in a majority of the actor training programs in the US and in Australia, England, Germany, Italy, Belgium, Finland, Spain, and Russia. In 2013, Kristen retired from Columbia as Professor Emerita and returned to her native Orkney in Scotland. In 2014, the Kristen Linklater Voice Center opened its doors to a fully residential voice retreat center, offering a variety of voice and text courses throughout the year. And lucky for me, she was my voice professor at Columbia's MFA acting program. So thank you, Kristen, for taking the time to talk with me. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. You are welcome. It's, it's great to see your face. Oh, so you begin your book, Freeing the Natural Voice, with a tribute to your teacher, Iris Warren. 
What did Ms. Warren teach you that connects so powerfully to the training you have developed over several years? Well, of course, I didn't have anything to compare it to at that time. So it was just the voice training. It's only looking back on it that one can make comparisons with, with other ways of training. Uh, and uh, at the time, you know, we were 17, 18, 19-year-olds, and we were, uh, I would say, a little bit, a little bit uh, careless and shallow, uh, <laughs> having to turn up to these classes and close our eyes and look inside ourselves and find out about our breathing and say this silly little thing called huh. And what was that all about? And hum a lot. So we were not in any way um, uh, impressed with this. It was part of our training. We did movement training, voice training, and uh, uh, Shakespeare and improvisation. And that was our, our training. Uh, that This was as a student. When I came to start to pupil teach, which I did immediately. Uh, I just repeated the exercises. I didn't have much comprehension about the uh, connective tissue through to the acting process, except that Iris did use the word truth quite a lot for it to be true. I think many of my students in my class right now are really excited about that, the synthesis or the connection between free relaxed breath leading to free expression of self. And for those of us who have had the opportunity to do your training, that now is a given. But when did it dawn on you, that really basic connection, that having a free relaxed breath and sound allowed you to actually freely express your self, your being? I really think it was a very slow, gradual understanding that grew during the first oh, 10, 15 years of my time in, in America. I, when I first went to the States, I knew very little about the professional theatre. I hadn't worked with professional actors. I'd worked in a drama school. I was 27 years old. I was very innocent, both of the, the, the world and, and human nature and, and the world of theater. But I immediately started working with actors. And a lot of the actors that I first started working with were being were actors who were studying with Wynne Handman, who has recently died in the age of 94, I think, a great acting teacher. So his acting studio sent me uh, uh, students or actors to work with. And that, in, and also working with a lot of the actors who were in the actor's studio began to give me a vocabulary that connected to something called truthful acting. And I think 
really I can't pin down a particular understanding, a moment of understanding about the freedom of breathing. But I know that it grew and it grew and it grew and it is still growing. It still it has no end to it, to, to what that means for the breath to be free, to pick up the impulses of, of thought and feeling. And I know from experience, it takes constant practice and repetition. And I imagine even for you, with your profound expertise, you are always practicing or aware that there is more to practice. Well, I think also, particularly with what's happening now, when there's so much that's to do with the lungs, and there's, there's more detail uh, still coming up from the medical field. And I've been fascinated by the one of the processes that's used. This may not be very uh, impressive for now for this conversation, but that, that in order to relieve the lungs in severe cases of respiratory failure, they will turn the patient over on their bellies so as to move the uh, the breathing into the back. And of course, that's what happens when you drop down your spine, you start to breathe in your back lungs. And the, the back lungs go down further in the body than the front lungs. So there's a lot of lung space in your back. And the lungs are being acted on by the diaphragmatic crura, which are these very internal involuntary muscles that help to pull the diaphragm down and open up the lungs from the back to the front rather than from the front to the back. So that's uh, always fascinating. And I think something that is going to take a long time to become familiar in the terminology of training, uh, which is let your thought, let your breath come from your back into your front. Yeah. It, it only makes sense because the nervous system runs down the spine and activates the body from the back to the front, and including the breathing. So you asked, and yes. yes. <laughs> no, I am, I am quite moved because you are speaking directly to the work that we're doing that we are pulling from your book. So it's having a direct connection to the work that I'm doing in my class right now. Uh, and I have, my head is exploding because I'm trying to figure out what question to ask next. Uh, I'll start with one or just an observation from a student, Lily, who also was the one who asked about the, the connection between the free breath leading to free expression of self. Um, she has some, a lot of singing training and was struggling to really breathe into her belly with your work. Uh, she, it was easy for her really just to breathe fully into her rib cage, but not deeper. But then finally, when we, we did the exercises of, of um, opening up the rib cage, she was able to integrate breath, lower back and ribs. And finally the capacity, she could integrate those three places into one, but it took the time and the repetition of sort of incrementally breaking those things apart before she was able to, to, to integrate them. And similarly to the roll down and being able to breathe into your back, a lot of the students are able to breathe more fully 
lying down, like when they aren't fighting gravity. And so we are constantly practicing the the freeness that they feel lower, being able to do that standing. So I just want to backtrack on to Lily, who is, you said, is now able to integrate. Well, I would say to Lily, you are allowing the natural integration to happen. Our breathing muscles are naturally integrated. Diaphragm, rib muscles, uh, diaphragmatic crura, they, if left alone, again, looking back, looking at the baby's breathing, it's everything in synchronized response to the need to live, let's say. And then when we come to the need to speak and the need to sing, that's when we tend to uh, interfere with trying to manage the breathing. Whereas really we need to, to um, get to know, to picture, to, to uh, get fascinated by the sensations of these different parts of the uh, physical act and then stimulate it, stimulate it and get out of the way. And that's right. Again, if Lily's a singer, uh, she should lie on her belly and sing into the into the ground from uh, from her back. And she, yeah. sometimes you do your best singing in that. If you can really let your body go at that point, uh, uh, unfortunately, you can't do much performance lying right. lying on the ground. But, <laughs> You can stimulate that mind-body connection, and I think that's what we're after all the time. Uh, thank you. Without dismissing the how ta- wonderfully time-consuming and detailed your work is, and I'm going. I'm, I want to ask a few questions about the detailed uh, yeah. and anatomical detail you go into, and the images, uh, and so much else. If you were to talk to someone who's just stepping foot into Linklater training. Can you distill it down to just a few, the most important points? Like for one is the one you've just talked about is, is freeing, the, freeing the breath for natural voice. Another one that interests me is, is really physically feeling the difference between relaxation and tension. Um, are there a, a few more just for someone to begin to understand the breadth of your technique? Well, I, I, I think it quite helps to make a very simple outline of uh, a a picture of the voice saying there's an an impulse, a need, a desire to speak that activates the breath, brings the breath in, the vocal folds close, the breath presses against the vocal folds and creates a small initial vibration, which then is immediately picked up and resounds through resonators. Resonators are largely made of bones, cavities in the body. And then those uh, resonators, which are uh, present in the body from, let's say, the chest, but actually you can go deeper in the body, but let's say the the ribs to the top of the skull, um, those resonators create a range of three to four octaves of speaking notes in the voice. And then your lips and tongue chop those up into words. So in a way, a simple picture helps. 
and also, sometimes it helps people who come to this for the very first time is to say uh, you can communicate with voice and no speech, but you can't communicate with speech and no voice. Now, it sounds very simple to you because you teach this stuff and I, you know, but it can be quite of a quite a more a light bulb moment uh, to realize oh it's there's a voice that is picking up the, uh, the the inner life of my feelings and my uh, sensory existence and why I want to speak at all yeah uh, and then you get into, well, why does the voice not work? Why do I have to work on it if it's so right. simple? Right. Well, because the impulse to speak can be interrupted by the secondary impulse, which says, ah, I don't think you should speak. And then all those muscles start to protect you against uh, revealing yourself through your voice. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we're working on, is, is removing the inhibitory tensions that, that uh, prevent the energy of communication, the energy of the voice to come through. I'm remembering in grad school many times seeing my classmates and perhaps experiencing it myself of you getting us to behave in a childlike way, behaving like a child, speaking like a child. And it had so much freedom and play to it. And I sometimes have done that with my students, partly when I think the character they're playing uh, is young and therefore it fits, but I'm realizing it really loose, loosens them up. Uh, a question from a similar question from my student Sam: What is your best recommendation to take our focus off the end result, what it sounds like, and enjoy the process? How mm. do you do that? Oh, you got to have you have to have two hundred and fifty-seven different ways of doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, very, very important part of one's, of one's technique is to how do I distract my controlling uh, frontal lobe logical mind that wants to do it right uh, and actually is, is diminishing all sorts of other possibilities. How do I interfere with that logical frontal lobe mind uh, and allow the brilliance of my uh, of the other parts of my brain, memory, emotion, uh, invention, imagery. How do I allow that to come in and and surprise me with uh, ideas and so on? Uh, you can you can do things like <laughs> Sis Berry had a wonderful exercise where she would get you to sit down and uh, do your speech. Speaking your speech, you would look at a bookshelf and decide to put all the books into alphabetical order by author, right? <laughs> you have to be doing something absolutely different while speaking your speech. So there are various different ways. I like things like um, uh, changing the speed of doing running, uh, walking, standing still, you know, just randomly, you run, you walk, you stand still, you lie down, you get up, you jump up and down uh, to, to shift 
the uh, the, the rhythms of of speaking. Uh, another way, which I'm sure you've probably done with them, is to take your voice away and whisper so that you do not have your ear telling you how you would like it to sound, but you really have to focus on what it is you're thinking. Uh, the, uh, there are a lot of, of, of strategies, and, but very simply, start your speech or at any point during while you're working on it yourself, not in the middle of performance, obviously, drop down your spine and, and, and do it upside down. It, it releases all sorts of muscles in the neck. And, well, it depends on what kind of speech it is, whether it's, it's all the acting things, focus on the given circumstances. Yeah. Uh, uh, if it's that kind of speech, uh, if it's Shakespeare, then really go for the imagery. Yeah, I uh, I got to play Mercutio last summer, and the oh, imagery, oh, it was so fun. Uh, but I just agree with you that you just arm yourself with all these tools, and sometimes yeah. you're using images, sometimes it's physical sensation, sometimes it's breath, sometimes it's just playing off of the other people. Uh, yeah. There are so many. Well, yeah. like you course. say, you're not just working with one tool; you're working with a bunch. Yeah, yeah. and but the, uh, when you say working with, other, as soon as you've got other people there, the right. number one thing is listening. Yeah, I remember uh, when I was in school with you, you would often comment on movie performances that you thought were great. You mentioned Hilary Swank in Boys Don't Cry. You mentioned mm -hmm. Philip Seymour Hoffman in, I think it was Magnolia, and you uh, would often talk about how their mouth was open. Um, yeah that and therefore were able to receive not just allow breath in and out but receive information from scene partners in that way yeah you'll very often see that in great moments of of particularly emotional uh content um that that the mouth is open and it's funny because a lot of people to begin with they there's so much training now yoga training um, where they say breathe in through your nose and so on, and and it and and people think, well, that's natural for me to breathe through the nose. Well, it's it's natural to breathe through the nose. It's natural to breathe through the mouth. It depends what's going on, and to train yourself to listen with your mouth open is going to make you much more immediately in the moment uh, with what it is that you're saying. And I'm realizing it also. Uh, helps to relax the jaw, which is my my Achilles heel. We might circle back. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I can't be the only one. Um, one thing I love about your training and I think appeals to my students is how interdisciplinary it is. You're clearly bringing in psychology. You're bringing in anatomy, um, biology, Alexander technique, yoga. I'm especially fascinated about how much you go into anatomical detail and at the same time say, yeah, but that's not always useful. Here's an image that I think will actually allow you to work with this technique. Um, I think my question inside of this is, is <laughs> what can you talk about the power of these images that you've created uh, that are not necessarily anatomically correct? but that help with the work? Maybe give one or two examples of especially useful images. Uh, it's a big, you know, you've actually covered rather a lot of... <laughs> yeah. Talk uh, about whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> uh, 
And just trying to think, for instance, in terms of anatomical imagery, it is counterproductive to image, to get a picture of your voice coming from your throat, even though anatomically it is created in the voice box. So that's, a, a, if you like, that's using your imagination to make something work better. Uh, but is not absolutely accurate anatomically. Uh, Things like, however, using the imagination to to say, if you're lying on your back and you say, imagine the marionettist uh, with the string attached to your knee and the marionettist print, then you are exercising your imagination and making your imagination be the, 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 the most powerful activator in your body. And that's something, obviously, this is very good for the actor. The actor then can literally transform his or her body according to the imagination. So what is this thing called the imagination? Imagination is very dangerous for actors because it can lead them uh, completely in the wrong direction. Uh, oh, but I imagined that. That was my imagination. I'm going to give you one little quick little example. Yeah. Uh, um, somebody was working on the famous um, Shakespeare sonnet, uh, let me not to the marriage of true minds. And it says that love is not love that altered. It looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering, it is the star. So you've got the, to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. So this person, this student was speaking that reasonably sensibly. And I said, what are you actually imaging? Because this ship is a very particular image in that sonnet. And this student said, oh, I'm imaging uh, a dog barking round the house in the middle of the night. <laughs> Sorry, that will not do. No. <laughs> so uh, you, you have to actually exercise your imagination to be, to serve the purpose and the need of the time. And what's happening uh, in the brain, and this is fascinating to me because I've been thinking about it, how to put this simply, and I probably won't be able to. Uh, when you look at something, I'm looking now at a vase of flowers, uh, if I had an fMRI um, looking at my brain, a particular part of my brain visual in the visual cortex would be lighting up at the moment because I'm looking at those flowers. I then close my eyes. I go away to a different room. So I'm no longer seeing them out there. But I, again, see though that vase of flowers. The same part of my brain is lighting up. So the same part of the brain lights up when you imagine a thing as when you see it actually. Now, for a lot of acting, you're going to be imagining things that you will, I hope, never see. I mean, there are some horrible things that you have to imagine. Um, the connection between that sensory cortex, that part of the brain that is seeing or 
hearing, auditory cortex or sensory or uh, visual cortex connects through the spinal cord to the, uh, the senses of the body, the sensory brain, the gut brain. So that you, I look at the flowers, I feel if I choose to, if I let my breath go with that, and if I say, oh, how do I feel looking? Oh, they make me feel good. Same thing happens when I think about them. So for the actor, the specific imaging, particularly if you're doing Shakespeare, where the imaging is very often really heightened, the specific imaging will arouse a specific emotional response. And I think we could call that the truth, the truth of that bit of text. And that's only one tiny little bit of text adding up to more images and more images and more images mm -hmm. all the time. So I, uh, the, the, uh, the exercising of imaging is not quite the same as the imagination. We feed the imagination with accurate imagery, and that's, that's exercise. And the images are what give rise to the words. The words create the image, but it's the image that then brings the word to life. I love when I can hear the difference in my students, they will initially just describe the memory or describe, <laughs> there's this amazing book that if you probably already know about it, that my husband turned me on to called I Remember by Joe Brainerd. I'll send you a portion of it. It's just a list of I remember statements about his life. And it sounds, it sounds trite, but you start to read it and you read a bunch of them and they become very moving. And some of them are kind of silly. Some of them are very short. Some of them are more long-winded, and you begin to understand uh, this man and his relationship to these memories. So I have my students speak these statements about themselves, and eventually they will, they will do them as a fictional character. But initially, we just hear these statements spoken as descriptions. And then with work, of course, and often with moving and jumping, they begin to have that I'm going to say emotional attachment. They have a relationship to that memory. I was just trying to think, uh, just to, uh, one other thing, uh, but I was trying to think of a good example, which of course doesn't spring to mind immediately. Um, but the, uh, the, we use the word metaphor uh, and say something is like something else. Um, but for Shakespeare, you have to, you have, uh, it's very helpful. You don't have to do anything, but it's very helpful to say there is there's no such thing as a metaphor. For instance, if you have Leontes saying inch thick, knee deep, or head and ears a forked one, well, is that a metaphor? You could say it is, but it isn't. It's actually how he feels. Inches thick into his body, knee deep, as if he's stepping into it, into his up to his knees. And then he steps further into the feeling of jealousy or head and ears. And then you come to the image of a forked one. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, that then does 70% of your acting for you. 
I just want to point out here also that it's that imagery doesn't always mean words with images in them. For instance, there are no apparent images in to be or not to be. That is the question. You would say that's pure grammar. However, <laughs> to be opens up a mass of imagery. Yeah. Not to be opens up a mass of imagery. Well, your voice is going to pick it up. Yeah. If breath, if your breath is is part of the, if there's that connection from that bit of your brain through your spine to your breathing, you don't have to think about your voice. Your breath will pick up the that change in imagery and reveal it. Another student says at the beginning of, of your book, of Freeing the Natural Voice, you briefly state that your technique, as well as relaxation, free expression in general, is key to film acting. Could you expand on that more? Your voice is the truth thermometer. I'm going to say that again. It's the truth thermometer. Your voice, your breath, pick up what's happening inside you. And sometimes your voice has to share that with a large number of people in a live space. And sometimes your voice has to share that by being transparent to uh, your inner, inner life and inner experience. It's uh, voice work is so crucial for film work because of the connection with breath and feeling and the subtlety of that. Now, having said that, um, <laughs> there tends to be a, 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 a there tends to be an idea among student actors, let's say, that it's a very different thing acting for camera or acting for um, the stage. However, and you might say, well, you don't really need to train your voice for that. Uh, I just, uh, th there's just a very quick little anecdote that I sometimes ha have told. I don't, don't think it was in your class. I brought my son Hamish in to talk to the actors one day. And at that point, he had just had a rather busy year acting with film. And the first film that he did that year, was a film by Miranda July. Oh, yeah. A brilliant and experimental writer and filmmaker. And she was both starring in it, shooting it, written it, and it was a love affair. So she and Hamish were lovers. And he had to be able to act with her behind the camera. Wow. Right? making love to her behind the camera while she was saying things like, that's too much, that's too much, much less, much less. And he, then him pulling it back and her, then her saying, but, but why are you smiling? Don't smile. Uh, and him trying to you know, be in love and, and all that. And, and always sort of internalizing, but expressing and so on. So that was complex inner journey as the actor. And then a month or so later, he did a film called Battleship. 
action movie, huge action movie. Peter Berg was the director. It was shot in Hawaii. Hamish was a young scientist living up in the mountains who was the only one in touch with the aliens who are coming to destroy the U.S. Navy. <coughs> and he had to come running down from the mountain shouting, the aliens are coming, the aliens are coming. And Peter Berg was in a, a jeep with a shotgun, and he was shooting his shotgun and saying, yeah, more of that, more, Hamish. Yeah, Hamish, you're in the zone. Everyone get in the zone. <laughs> right? <laughs> Sometimes you will have 20, 20 takes on, um, on a huge action moment, and you'd better have a voice. Yeah. And then you'd also better be able to be truthfully personally, sensitively, alive inside with camera to see in and listen in. I have a student who is a senior and all of our seniors have transformed their culminating directing, producing projects into radio plays, Zoom uh, plays. And he was asking me, hey, do you know anyone in Denver, a voiceover expert who can help me with the sounds of combat, right? Like you get punched in the gut and you punch, you know, you slap someone. So I talked to my friend Mare, who's a professional voiceover artist, and she said, it's just Linklater. Like you just, (laughs) yeah, she says you breathe and you, you know, you want to physicalize and create some uh, imitation of or uh, some recreation of the physical sensation, but out of that, the breath and the sound just come out and that's it. That's all it is. It's acting. That's mm-hmm. acting. Uh, a question, uh, a question. What are the most stubborn parts of the body when working on Linklater? For me personally, it's my jaw. Well, the jaw is, is always the, the obvious one that, that comes up because it's related, because it, if there's tension in the jaw, it immediately feeds into tension in the throat. And so you're going to feel the effect of that. The, and the other effect of it is that your voice is inexpressive. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't tell the story you want it to tell. But you see, the jaw will free up when the breath is free. So it's always going to come back to the breath, the breath, the breath, the breath, the breath. And um, uh, even more now, well, even more, but certainly... It's difficult for young people who are encouraged to be very beautiful and very slim and to go to the, to the gym and do Pilates and tighten up those abdominal wall muscles. It's very difficult to persuade them to let that abdominal uh, guard, that abdominal shield to, to soften and but until it does, the breath is not going to connect to the emotional solar plexus uh, uh, nerve endings that are what communicate through to truthful emotional expression. If you hold your abdominal wall tight, you are holding your organs tight behind the abdominal wall, and if the 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 organs are being held tight, the diaphragm cannot descend easily. And so the breath goes into the ribs. Well, mechanically, that's okay. But 
it takes you away from the emotional connection. Because the emotional connection is primarily through the diaphragm area. The diaphragm solar plexus connection is the uh, emotional receiving and transmitting center. So to begin with, young actors are going to have to be persuaded to let go of their vanity or their hopes for uh, certain kinds of roles. But only to begin with. I think eventually you can, but it takes a lot of very specific messaging in the body, you can have that tautness in the abdominal wall and you can relax behind it. But that's sophisticated. That's a sophisticated set of messages to your body. I'll ask you one more question. Uh, What are you working on now? What plans do you have for the future, for the next few months, for the next few years? Before the pandemic struck, I was already starting to plan doing um, a 16 to 20 uh, episode, if you like, um, video instructional series to film well, the just the basic technical progression of exercises. So that's that's part of my plan to actually start filming the work uh, professionally. So it's it's there, it's recorded, and will be uh, visible. Um, the and and. Alongside that, so there's quite a lot happening, oddly enough, at this stage in my life. There's quite a lot happening. Just speaking for myself, I love how you revised and expanded Freeing the Natural Voice because when I was at school with you, we had we were using the older, the initial edition, and I just I love all the nitty. Because I was there 99 to 02, so you were probably beginning to. I bet you were working on this, but it was not published. Yeah, right. What do you notice as the as the big difference between the blue book and the yellow book? Uh, I I have not looked at the blue book for a while. I the incredible detail of the anatomy of the what's his name Antonio Damasio, uh, the feeling of what happens, yeah, and the interplay of anatomy and images, and me getting to decide which one I focus on is, is, is really helpful to me. Mm. Um, that's, and I also, I don't know if this is in the original three times throughout the book over the course of parts one and two, you have these, uh, workouts, intermission workouts, uh, which I feel are a great summary of what's come before. Good. Yeah. I do want to just say for the record, um, Everybody refers to yoga when they talk about my physical work, but it wasn't yoga. And I just, it, it, when I was teaching at NYU in 1960, from 65 on, I guess, 66, uh, there was a, an extraordinary dance program, dance department, which was 
created by people from the modern dance world who were really changing the way that, that the, the body was being uh, uh, used. So it was not Martha Graham uh, contractions and that, that kind of effort work. It was, well, there's quite a lot of Laban influence, I think, much more from the, uh, from the oddly enough, from the modern dance movement, which mm. was really exploring, and they may have taken some things from yoga, but yoga wasn't important in those days. Yeah. It didn't dominate the physical world, the physical training world as it does now. Kristen, thank you so much. This has been a joy. I wish I could keep talking to you. Thank you. It's been lovely talking to you, Anne. Very, very pleased to have made a, a connection again with you. Me too. And I'd like to end this episode by thanking the amazing podcast team, Katiri, of course, and Jonathan, Cammie, Nate, and Jennifer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>